This is Hawaii Rising, a podcast from the Hawaii People's Fund. I'm Kenji Cataldo. I'm Suyuno Amos. Each week, we'll be talking story with grassroots community organizers at the forefront of progressive movements for change in Hawaii. Over this series, we're featuring the 30 grantees who received community-raised funds through the Hawaii People's Fund this year. It's our biggest cohort to date, and we're so excited to share their stories with you. Today, we're speaking with Auntie Lynette Cruz and Uncle Sparky Rodriguez from Malama Makua, a Hawaiian-led organization advocating for the return of Makua Valley on Oahu to culturally appropriate stewardship. Makua Valley was seized by the Army during World War II and used for decades for bombing practice until legal action taken by Malama Makua brought about the end of live fire training in the valley. Malama Makua has a long history of maintaining presence in the valley, a history that reflects changes in their relationships with military personnel as physical access to the valley also changed. Malama Makua's story continues to develop into the future as their current leadership faces another juncture of change, seeking out kia'i who can carry their work forward. A couple weeks ago, U.S. Representative Kai Kahele introduced the Leandra Y Act into the House of Representatives. If passed, this act would convey Makua Valley to the state and provide funding to clean up the decade's worth of unexploded ordinance that still lies in its soil. The act is named for Uncle Sparky's wife, Leandra, who was a driving force in the movement for Makua until her passing in 2016. And it recognizes that it is the decades of work by community organizers, including Auntie Leandra, that have led to this point. We recorded this conversation with Uncle Sparky and Auntie Lynette in February before the legislation was announced. Okay, so we're sitting here at Pokai Bay. Hopefully you can hear the birds maybe in the background, maybe you can hear the ocean. And we're sitting with Auntie Lynette and Uncle Sparky, who are representing Malama Makua today. Um, could you both maybe just introduce yourselves and your, how long you've been involved with Malama Makua? Hmm. After you. <laughs> uh, that is a tough question. You know, we end up learning at all stages of our life. And Malama Makua is something that's evolved. So I first started with the homeless group at Makua. Uh, it's part of the what is called the Makua Council, and that led up to the evictions. Uh, so when I was arrested, it was because we were standing, we were looking for a long-term solution to home, for homelessness. But it was more than that because my wife and I had been separated, sort of, and um, we were on the Kahana Haiki side of Makua. It's like a big McDonald's sign. Can I ask what year that was about? Hmm, late 90s, something like that. It's been over 20 years, you know. Um, and the goal was to use the Aina to heal the relationship that we had. But also for me, it was an education because it showed some of the different players, the military, the police, government, elected officials, community members, and how they ended up stacking up against homelessness. And in the case in, in Makua, there were maybe 80 families, 60 families that were there. Uh, and the governor set a deadline, you gotta be off the beaches. And he was, his goal was to clear all the beaches of homelessness, but with no solution, it was just clear the beach. 
So you can be anywhere you like, but you can't be here, which wasn't a solution because they just went from one bridge to another, uh, another one community to another. And that seems to be the same solution here. Um, anyway, after that, we found that um, the army was really behind the evictions because they wanted to do amphibious landing. Not exactly the army, but the Marines and the Navy. So they were all complicit in all the activity at Makua. And once that happened, then we met uh, peace and justice people. Fred Dodge, Gigi Kokio. I mean, there's a whole bunch of peace and justice activists on the coast that we were able to meet at the gate at Makua because we were protesting uh, the military and what they wanted to do. So over the time span, that was kind of breaking into that understanding of what uh, community activism is. So the definition that I kind of relate to is um, the LA Times had a crossword puzzle and the, the, the comment was person that does something and the word was activist. I said, okay, I can do that. You know, it, it doesn't have a negative connotation to it. So that's kind of the start. So we healed our relationship, we battled the army, and here we are today, still battling. Well, it's so interesting. I think I met your wife before I met you. Yep, yeah. Um, I used to work for uh, Sierra Club Legal Defense Fund. After that, they became Earth Justice and I ran their program called Ahupua'a Action Alliance. And I, I, we had a, a retreat on Hawaii Island and Cleo Patterson was there and Cleo Patterson brought Leandra. And that's how I met her. I didn't know anything at all about Makua at the time, but all the organizations that we knew of um, sent representatives, so we all met at uh, the boat harbor, because Mahelani Pai guys were occupying that area on Hawaii Island. So we met there to stand with them in solidarity, but also to do a kind of, we were doing a retreat to figure out where Ahupua'a Action Alliance could actually help all of these different organizations. So that was like a kickstart for that. And then the next time I met Leandra, I think was at a Malamamakua meeting with Fred Dodge and others. And they asked me to come and be on their board. And I said, I live in uh, town. <laughs> I think I was living in Palolo at that time. And I'm not gonna come to any meetings. But Fred was really cool about it because what he did was he asked me to just come to the meetings I could. And they kept me on their email list. So they kept sending me updates years, you know? So whenever we could, and I started teaching regularly at UH Manoa. We would bring students out to Makua. And so that was the, in the introduction of town, town students, what was going on in Makua. And so then we hooked up with Ula Hasegur, who was teaching at LCC and HPU, you know, all these different universities. We tried to network with other teachers to bring their students to. And so that was my interaction with um, Malama Makua back in the day. And then I moved to Waianae in 2015. I remember Sparky saying, good, you can come back on the board. <laughs> so in 2015, I came back on the board. Um, and I think at my first or my second meeting, I moved into the president spot because Sparky was like done. 
right? He was the president. He said, okay, I'm, I'm done. Nick, take turns. So it was good. Um, but the truth is, after, after a while, I realized that um, our mission that we had adopted earlier was Tumalamamakua, whatever that means, without being clear about, you know, that, what that could mean. And I realized that a lot of the board members, we had two accesses a month that we were committed to, so someone had to go. We relied a lot on Fred, Fred Dodge, to do that because he and Leandro never missed an access. I mean, they were like the ones, and the rest of us came as we could. Um, and after Leandra passed and then after Fred really couldn't be going anymore because of age and um, ability or inability, um, the rest of the board members had to step up to the plate. And then, you know, this is honest, I think people were being burned out. And so uh, Vince stepped in. He took a large role, but even he was being burned out because we all have other things that we got to do. This, this burned out feeling meant that a lot of people didn't really want to come on the board because they knew what was required and they couldn't, they couldn't always meet the need. Uh, <clears throat> unlike most boards uh, where the board sets direction and does a lot of fundraising, we didn't exactly do that. Our first commitment was to, to the Valley, so we had to make sure that we were able to be in there. So last year, 2021, uh, we had never had this kind of a discussion, you know, among the board members. If we don't want to do this, what do we want to do? And, I remember Sparky telling me, I don't know how many times, um, we don't want to do tours. And we don't want to do hikes. Because every time we do that, we are meeting somebody else's need. They need to do a tour. They need to do a hike. And we're so accommodating. And we've been doing it. And it was burning us out because we didn't like it. So I don't know why we never took any of it seriously until like, last year um, <laughs> so it was interesting because we were not having a retreat we just gathered for another reason i think for iliana to meet us and she never showed and we sat there for a couple hours and since we we're there already we decided we should actually talk about something else what should we do and the first thing that we talked about was no life fire training in the valley is another way of saying we support peace that more itself is kind of outmoded. You find something else to do. Don't, don't talk about um, mediation. Don't talk about all the good things if we're not going to do it. So we shifted right then and looked at peace. Let's put peace inside the valley. Let's see how peace radiates outside of the valley and let's change our mission. Right then and there, we changed our mission, unplanned. But as soon as we did, something interesting happened. Everybody got really happy. <laughs> people, you could feel it, yeah? The, the energy level went up. People were like smiling and laughing and then planning on how we would do the shift. If we put peace in the center, what does that look like in terms of what we do for Makua? And so we started right then to develop a plan and to change um, on our website 
how you can access the valley because there was always an opportunity to just go there and sign up and anybody could come. And that's long, it's not an option now. You have to come through somebody on the board or somebody who knows somebody on the board. That's the only way you can come in. And the assumption is we are doing cultural accesses only. So immediately our approach to how people meet the valley changed. And, and the valley sort of like, I don't know, I, I like to think of it as kind of, it just was waiting, waiting for us to get to that place. So pretty interesting. And we've had a couple of accesses since then and every single one is amazing. So for listeners who might be less familiar with the, the story of Makua, um, can you share a little bit about how it came to be under army control and then how Malama Makua won uh, the cultural access? Um, let's see, it all evolved out of the, our effort, the Hawaiian perspective of the Aina being part of our family and being connected and the fence, which I call the fence of violence, which was keeping us separated. So the army military had control of one side and the community had the other. But the state and the county were so influenced by the militarization that whatever they wanted, the military wanted, it was almost carte blanche, okay. And a lot of community members, because of the military's influence and their serving and part of their uh, enlistment and their role in military, there's a lot of loyalty for the military. They need to train, they need to be able to do that. And the perspective of the Aina being our mother and our you know, parent, how are we treating our parent? How are we allowing that abuse, the bombing, the training, the bullets, uh, treating our Aina that way? And how do we really want it? Do we want that to continue? And Lynette mentioned that Malama Makua now has peace in its mission. And what was leading up to that, we we're talking about our 20 years of peace celebration coming up. We are, we're getting into our 18th year of no life fire, but we've had a 10 year uh, celebration of peace in Makua, and we had 15. And so now we're looking at the 20th anniversary of no peace, I mean, no live fire training. They're still doing training, but they're not doing live fire anymore. So right now they're, they've got the dummy target set up and they're doing, uh, what do you call that, drone training. Uh, laser tag, I guess, I don't know. <clears throat> so now that peace is incorporated into Makua, how are they gonna respond to us when that is the message that we're constantly implying as being our focus and our, where our attention is? Um, the fence being violence, the invasive species that have taken over the land, uh, specifically Makua, uh, how do we get that back? And it's not gonna happen overnight. So we're looking at seven generations. Uh, in that interim, when we were starting to discover each other, the Hawaiian component of Aina and then the Feast and Justice for Equity, uh, we found that there are some similarities in relationships that we could agree on, and abuse is one of them. So, um, when Leandra and I first went to Sierra Club Legal Defense to ask for help, we said, we've got a whole bunch of Hawaiians out there that we need to be able to access the Aina for healing. And they said, sorry, we cannot, we don't do people. 
you know, we only do endangered species. So I, I shared, we're endangered species. And they said, no, no, we can't do people. We can only do environmental endangered species. So with that, it changed our idea and our focus of who are we representing? And the ones we were looking at, representing at that point was the Hawaiians that had no voice. So all the endangered species became our, uh, our message. These are Hawaiians that have no voice and this is what's going on. So once that happened, we were able to talk to uh, uh, Earth Justice and they said, well, we don't do people, we do aina, I mean, endangered species. So that's where it happened. And then we said, okay, well, we need to protect the valley and stuff like that. So David Henkin, who was the attorney at the time, met with Fred and I and Leandra, and we were talking about the responsibility of the board to taking on a lawsuit. So basically, Fred and I were the only ones that was really working that had any economic stability at the time. And we had to go ahead and realize that we were placing all of our material, wealth, whatever that was, on the line for Makua. And if we lost, it would come out of our pocket. So there's a tremendous risk for the undertaking, not knowing what the hell we were doing. So anyway, David ended up sending a letter to them because there had been 250 fires over 10 years. We knew that it was burning into endangered species, burning up into uh, archaeological cultural sites. And the military said, ah, oh, no, there's nothing there. So he sent the letter. A week later, the Marines lava mortar outside the firebreak road starts burning the valley. Four o'clock, they leave, the valley's still burning and it burns for three days. The entire valley was cooked. And that is what got us into court to sue the military. And then from that point on, it was just a matter of one court case. And to date, we have not lost any. So the Army wanted to go back to training. We were able to get a TRO, forced them to stop. 9-11 happened. Uh, they came back to us and said, we got to train, you know why? Okay, so we had to negotiate for them to train and then we put stipulations that would never ever be included in any, um, what is that, environmental lawsuit. So we were able to get them to provide monies for our access for peer review. So the attorney, uh, David Hankin, went out and found experts to um, complement the Army's EIS that they had done. And the stack was hmm, about three feet tall of paper. So they kept throwing paper at us and within that had all of the little tidbits. I don't understand that stuff, but with David's help, he got peer reviewed to go through it, identify the, the poor methodology, the inadequate studies that was done and how it was biased and slanted to one side that provided uh, remedy for the army, but not for us. So with the peer review, all of a sudden, now the judge had two comments from experts that they would end up accepting, and uh, made it so that the army became uh, very defensive. So they said, no, we need the army, we need the training, we need all this stuff, and it became problematic for them because the judge said, 
especially after 9-11, they got their access, they did their training, they did all that stuff, they did a half-ass EIS, and the judge says, it doesn't seem like you adequately did the, the uh, EIS properly. It seems like you got a stick, stuck it in the ground, and said, okay, nothing's there. But over the period of time, they received 100% benefit of the negotiation for them to go train. Uh, they didn't use it all, but they did have that time period and the agreement for that that would allow them to train. They never used it all, but they were able to go start a war in Afghanistan and Iraq and all the other places that they send troops to kill. Uh, so anyway, that's kind of what got us into court. And the Marines really helped us with lobbying, the, creating that fire. Uh, and it brought attention to what was going on. And we made sure we publicized all of that. Every time there was a fire, we had a camera, put it on Olelo. And, um, the media component is the one that really helped uh, get the community to look at us not as being uh, homeless or as being uh, troublemakers, but as maybe protectors of the Aina. We don't protest, we protect. Um, I feel like what I've heard you talk about, at least in Lynette in conversations, and what it, it feels like is part of this transition maybe that Malama Makua is taking, is a focus on finding um, kia'i and, and uh, trying to build that sustainability into the future generation of this work. So I wonder about what you look for. What do you think are the qualities that you look for that make people able to take on that, that kuleana? I can share just a little bit about Leandra. She wasn't afraid to get her hands dirty. Um, she ended up building her holly on top of a dump, sifting and, and straining the sand to get all the trash and Apollo off the, the ground. Um, so during that, she also learned a little bit about listening, listen to the Aina, and uh, make that connection. It's more of a spiritual connection, an emotional connection, um, and it's that comfort that it gives our emotions and our, uh, and our physical being when we connect it that way. So the problem we have is that everyone is so busy. I gotta go work, I gotta pay rent, I gotta get fill up my gas so there's always a gata that's got to be done and she was the one that helped me understand that there's a lot of gatas in our life and we got to choose and the stuff that we choose will make the difference so what I mentioned earlier Fred and I had to decide are we going to sue the federal government in federal court and they're all pro-military and take the risk of losing our home losing our Whatever, for me, for us at that time, I had to decide, do I buy tape for the camera, gas for the car, or food for the family? That's the budget that we were on. And it really depended on what was going on at the time. So a lot of times we bought tape to cover the story, uh, or we'd borrow 20 bucks for gas, because at that time I had to shoot in Waianae, return the equipment to Mapunapuna, come back, and then go back to edit, and it, as many times as it took to do those things, uh, we had to decide, we had to choose. So my family's paid a tremendous price 
for our activism. Back in the day, it was not the friendliest place to be with the military. And it, they contracted with Hawaiians too to come in there and do like, um, check out the live bombs, EOD, and to uh, range control. They managed the range itself. And there were a couple guys, Hawaiians, um, and we were using the Ki'ipohaku, that site where the petroglyph is, to, as an informal classroom. We had been inviting all kinds of people to come in, and we invited Ron Williams to teach it. Oh, he was teaching back in the day. He's not teaching now, I don't think. Um, to come and do a talk about Hawaiian history and what happened at the time of the overthrow. So he did. And, you know, all these guys are unwilling participants, but they're there. And so, you know, and so they're all listening. I remember, um, and the, the, I forgot which colonel was, Hill maybe, some grumpy colonel. He told us afterwards, well, you know, I don't think any of that stuff is true. I mean, he just denied the whole thing, and so nobody said anything. But the two Hawaiian guys, when we were going out, we went up last, you know, we're at the tail end. They came and walked with us, and they said, I never knew that history, and thank you for sharing it. And then they said, how come I, didn't, I never knew that history? And to me, it just occurred to me at that moment, we always have an audience. The audience is the military, not just the people that come. And then we have an opportunity to share information. They don't have to believe it, or they can check on it, whatever. But they all learn something too. I think that's kind of when things started to shift and we started to look at when we're in the valley and we have to talk to people. And if we're not talking to the guys who are invited in or who came in with us on access, we should be talking to the military because they're in a position to actually maybe do something because that's where they work. So a little at a time and then not long ago, last year, Sparky and I were the only ones who went in. Just the two of us and support staff. And the colonel was there. And I don't know, Captain Joe or what? A bunch of people, a bunch of them and just the two of us. That was probably one of the best accesses we have ever done. We didn't go anywhere. <laughs> We sat at the table and talked. And I recall asking the colonel, what do you see as the future? I mean, like, what is your best case scenario for the future? And he said, peace on earth. And I like, I'm gonna fall off my chair here. <laughs> but he was dead serious. I saw him as a person for the very first time. I saw him as a person, not the enemy, not the guy who's in charge of everything, which he is, but as somebody who, like me, kind of cared about the world. And I don't know, he did his job, we did ours. For me, that changed everything. And then getting down to this thing about Kia'i, <clears throat> we have been informally trying to recruit younger people to join us. and. People come and go, but this last group of people, they're here to stay. And they might include you guys. And I think the reason they're here to stay is because I think they see a larger vision. 
And that larger vision actually has to come from us. We see a larger vision. We, we look at beyond Makua. Yes, Makua would love to be a peaceful valley where people can work together, share whatever, and visit occasionally, because I don't think anybody can live there, well, not for a while. Um, so we wanted to move forward by recognizing humanity in every person. For whatever reason it is that you're doing what you're doing, do you have a larger vision? And I think that's what we're trying to see. Do you guys that are like on the other side of the fence that Sparky's always talking about, this fence that makes me feel really super violent, excluded, um, and falsely thinking that as long as we're outside, we're safe, which is really what they're saying. As long as you're on the outside where you don't belong, I mean, where you do belong because you don't belong inside, you're, you're safe. And that's not even true. Um, we need dialogue, what I call on the ground dialogue, lower level dialogue, because we're like nobody, right? Just ordinary folks. And at, at some point, the, the command will acknowledge the fact that they're just like us. They can't really do anything. They're stuck inside a system that directs them. And then after I personally realize it, and I, I think we all realize it, and I think our kia'i realize it as well, we have to not constantly be looking at them as enemy, but as caught. They're caught. So within the area that you're caught, what, what can you do to help us? That's always our question. How can you help us? And for the rest of us, we're caught, but at a lower level. <laughs> I'm trying to visualize that, by the way, like a fishnet or something like that. Um, maybe less important, but important nonetheless. So when I, when I look at the different kia'i who come on board, it's so hard to explain that. I can't. You guys got to come. You got to see. And you got to go and see what else is going on. And come. We're going to go over there. And we're going to do this. And we're going to clean up that. Come and help us. So we have our work days every week. We've been doing it for a couple of years, and we have come to know all of these people we hope will all come in as kia'i at some point. We're trying to impart um, an ethic through practice. Lynette's brought up a few things for me to remember, and then I init initially, the army would end up doing training. They would take their troops and hikes on the beach at Bakua, go around Kaena, but it was always with their weapons. So they would challenge Leandra. You know, you'd have the, the troops running by and the guy with the gun would be standing and like that, you know. And uh, until they all passed and he would go, but the offense of them doing that. And then there was another time where we were going in to meet with some of the command guys in the their building and I had my camera and the guy said no no you can't bring that in I said well they're not going to stay outside and eventually they talked about it and it, what I told them was that inside I'm going to behave outside you got no control and no say so you choose and they chose to allow us to go in and so that was one of the things that we were able to do take my big monstrous camera in and and just the intimidation 
for these guys was enough. Um, but they would challenge, initially at the gate, when we'd go in, they'd have MPs with sidearms, their Kevlar, their, you know, they were armed to protect their live fire training area. And even putting names on the list, they still weed us out. But one of the things, you know, the kia'i, I think of myself as a kia'i, because Moku is the training ground. We don't have a curriculum on how to be a kia'i. You go in there, you get your knocks, you listen to what's going on, and it's all a flow. Most of it is around listening. And what does the Aina really want us to do? So although they were challenging us, coming in armed, we became the reflection on, on what they were doing and why they were doing it. So I think even what Lynette was saying, we have influence. We've learned, but we've also taught. And they've had a chance to learn by what we're doing and what we're not doing. So we're not challenging them as much, but when we need to, we do. And we don't back down. So it's not about picking a fight, it's about winning the war. And yeah, sometimes we step up and sometimes we step back, but it's always with the intention that the Aina wins. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. <clears throat> I think it's, it's good for Kia'i to see a visible softening. That's just my thought. Yeah. I mean, if you put any of us on the front line, it's in your face. And when I say that, I mean, we are, we're going to resist. We'll take what comes. We're not backing off ever. But the idea of softening is just to let people know that hardcore is hardcore in, in that struggle. But there, there are these other ways of behaving that leave openings for dialogue. Mm -hmm. And so I think those people that come on as kiai are witnesses. They, they witness, they watch. Just like you would watch your parents, you know. If you're in a position to make judgments, you can't help it. You know, the young folks that are coming on board, they, they cannot help but see whether or not what we say and what we do line up. And that's really important because that's what we're asking of the military. You know, if, if you say that you're here to protect us or you, you're here to help or whatever, then we're going to see how that lines up. And, you know, and a big example, I guess, is the Red Hill thing. Um, what you're saying and what you're doing they don't, they don't line up. So that's, I am well aware as we do these things that in the audience are a number of people who are already committed to BKIA and who may want to come on board. And my hope is that they will be able to see that it's not meant to insult or harm, but to give people a chance to just kind of like get real. And so, and then you can choose not to because it's maybe not the time but there will be opportunities in the future. And so every, every chance we get, we're in the training mode. And I think we all have to be mindful, and we are, because when it's time for us to move back, which is like probably tomorrow, um, we can trust that everybody who steps forward is going to be doing the same thing, because that's what they learned. So that's the long answer <laughs> to the kia'i thing. Now that softening you described, it makes me think about how peace is now part of the new mission statement, and it sounds like it's meeting war with peace. So I wanted to ask for people listening, can you give us sort of the, the latest on Makua and talk about the 2029 
lease uh, and like that date, and then Malama Makua's vision for what will come after that. Uh, we have embarked on a data collecting effort and asking people just randomly or, you know, we have a QR code with questions that one of our kiai came up with, um, asking them what they envision for the future of the valley. So we've, I think maybe we have like 40 responses, not enough. We'd like to collect, it'd be nice to get a thousand, but we have mm, seven years, but we're not, we can't wait till then. One of the things we discussed in, in our board meetings is creating the plan, you know, the excellent, perfect plan. The idea being that you put up first what you want, everything that you want, and then you break it up into parts and we find out who can do that thing. And then you, you give everybody a piece of it. But before we could figure out what we wanted, we wanted to gather data. What do other people want? We don't own the valley. Everybody on the west side, at least, should be able to weigh in about their what they envision. So starting with data collection um, and at some future time, some discussion, kind of like what we did today, uh, but more focused to see um, maybe visually, this is the structure that we're looking at. What do you guys think about this? And this is what people said. That's why we put it in. Um, and then we weigh in and then after, I don't know, maybe a few months, I'm giving us maybe like six months. Let's look at what people have said and what we can do to plan to move in that direction. At some point, all of this needs to be presented to the state because DLNR, Department of Land and Natural Resources, is actually one, the one that is, can issue the permit. Even though we know underneath it all, they already made the deal. Yeah. We know it. But we're going to go through the process that has been identified as the correct formal process and appeal to the state to reconsider just blankly, just giving it to them because the community has its own plan and it looks like this. So that's kind of like what, what we're doing right now. We're not going to let them renew the lease for Makua. Um, that opens up a different problem. What do we do? And it goes back to what Lynette was saying. We need to figure that out. And part of it is clean it. And Joe Astoria said, clean it to our standards. We have our scientists test what your scientist has done with peer review. So looking for the funding to make sure that we can make that happen. And it's not just trust, trust the government to do a good job. I trust that they will fail. And we need to make sure that we're part of that process of uh, dealing with the outcome. And I've always been a, a believer that the military, the U.S. government is a rogue elephant going through the forest, doing whatever they like because they can. And I'm just a, we're just a mosquito. And we're not going to change their mind. We're not going to stop their destructive way. But can we get them to stop and scratch, not doing any damage? So for the last 20 years, they've been scratching. And we keep on giving them something to scratch about. They're not doing as much damage anymore. But the first bullet in Makua is still there that we need to work on cleaning up. Seven generations, maybe more, I don't know. But eventually, 
the streams will flow, the forests will be uh, renewed, and Maka will be back to the Aina. I mean, you know, people will be able to go back to the Aina in a very positive, culturally appropriate way. Well, I think that's a really beautiful note to end on. Is there anything else that you'd like to share before we close? Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for talking with us. Yeah. Hawaii Rising is a podcast from the Hawaii People's Fund produced by me. And me. With additional support from... Mickey! Our theme music is Revolutionary from the band Ukla the Mock, written and sung by Mickey Hui Hui. Production of this podcast is supported by a fellowship from Princeton University. Thank you to our community donors and to you, our audience, for listening. In our next episode, we'll be speaking with Pohaha Ikalani. Because if you would tell me that, oh, you're going to give up teaching and then you're not going to have income <laughs> for doing this, I would think that would be, that would be crazy. You don't want to miss it. <laughs>